following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. They'll know you've arrived when you drive up in the 1958 Edsel, the car that's truly new from nameplate to taillights. Now your host, Walt Disney. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to that tip-top terrific and splendidly prolific waltz down memory lane, the Mid-Modcast. And here are your Mid-Modcasters, Craig, Paula, and Dave. Welcome to the Mid-Modcast, where all your mid-century dreams come true. I'm Craig. With me is Dave. Without hey, Paula. everybody. Hey, Glad Dave. to be back. And we are happy to have back our good friend, Ray Keating, author extraordinaire mm-hmm. and Beach Boys junkie. Hey, and I am not. <laughs> I am not Paula. You are not. Oh, <laughs> You are sexy, but not that sexy. That's right. Yes. I'm very happy to be here, though, to talk to you guys. We should probably let our listeners know that um, Paula is decompressing from a, a rough end of the school year. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, she she actually has a new job where she'll only be teaching kindergarten through third grade. So she's very excited about that. But uh, that starts next year. In the meantime, if you would like to contact us, we'd love to hear your show ideas uh, that you might have for the Mid-Modcast. Write to uh, Mid-Modcast, just Mid-Modcast, at gmail.com. You can find us at midmodcast.com. And do subscribe to this program. If you don't subscribe to this podcast, uh, we would be very honored, and it would be very helpful if you did subscribe, and if you gave Dave a five-star review. I don't deserve one, but Dave does because he's very special. (laughs) (laughs) But we would love to hear your show ideas and memories that you have of yesteryear. Uh, We are excited today. We're talking about summer music and music that brings us back to happier times, I guess you could say. And if you were to go in the Wayback Machine to 1981 and find young Craig, who was terribly handsome at that time... Uh, he and his buddy Dave or his buddy Rodney would be in his Fiat Spider driving down to Balboa Peninsula in Newport Beach with some surf music playing on the car stereo. And there were several bands that I, I loved and I had uh, cassettes of before the days of CDs. Great bands like Dick Dale and the Deltones, the Surfaris, the Fireballs, Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys. But then there was the band that started it all. The band that recorded over 3,000 songs, wrote 1,000 themselves, 450 plus records. They had five albums on the Billboard Top 100 at the same time. This band was before there was even a genre of surf music. They weren't even from California. They were from uh, the Seattle-Tacoma area. Who knew? This is the band that launched 1,000 bands. They were called The Ventures. And the Ventures are an American instrumental rock band formed in 1958 in Tacoma, Washington by Don Wilson and Bob Bogle. I can't, Don Bogle, I don't know who that is. Uh, (laughs) They were mostly a quartet through most of their time. They they tried all sorts of music through the years. Uh, They even put out a disco album 
and I would like oh, to get my oh, hands. Did they really? Yes. Uh, wow. There's there's a documentary called The Venture Stars on Guitars that you can watch on Amazon Prime, Freebie, Roku TV, a few other places. I think Crackle. But um, anyway, they played just a clip of it, and I said, "That is so awful. I need to own it." So <laughs> <laughs> I have to find this. Anyway, their first hit. Was in 1958. They they were playing guitar, and of course, it was a typical thing where the dad was saying, "Oh, go get a real job. Stop this guitar nonsense and all this kind of stuff." But mom was a musician from way back when, and she loved the idea of her son playing music. And she kind of became their first producer, promoter, and everything else. And she she helped pay for their first 45. Uh, they needed 25 bucks yet, and uh, she kicked out that 25 bucks. But then she went into overdrive, helping them out. Their first hit was this one. It was played in lo- on local radio in uh, Tacoma, uh, and it was just used for a commercial break because it wasn't known or anything, and people loved it so much that they just kept playing it and playing it and playing it. It reached all the way down to Los Angeles and became a big hit. It's called Walk, Don't Run, and it goes something like this. This song brought them national and even international fame. It is now considered one of the top songs ever recorded for guitar. In the 60s and early 70s, 38 of the band's albums had charted in the U.S., ranking them as the sixth best band, or I'm sorry, sixth best best album chart performer during the 1960s. The band had 14 singles on the Billboard Hot 100. With over 100 million records sold, the Ventures are the best-selling instrumental band of all time. Wow. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they have an enduring impact on the development of music worldwide. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, Walk Don't Run actually charted twice in the American Top, top 40 at two different times this song. Uh, they, they were really trailblazers in so many ways. They employed all sorts of... Weird and new technologies, a fuzz box, a flanging guitar. Uh, they put out concept albums. Uh, they messed around with 12-string guitars on rock music. People didn't do that back then, especially. Their virtuosity was just boundless. They, they, were, they were so involved with new technology. Uh, reverb was something at this time that was still kind of brand new. It was just a spring that, you know, was in a box that kind of went between the guitar and the amp. But, hmm. you know, they they just had that wet, mushy, 
reverby sound, and it was wonderful. <laughs> it became the sound of surf. And uh, this is something that took off as surf music. And if you ask them if they were a surf band, they'd say, no, we don't surf. We don't know what you're talking about. We're a guitar band. That's what we are. Uh, Don Wilson and Bob Bogle first met in 1958 when Bogle was looking to buy a car from a used car dealership in Seattle owned by Wilson's father. They found a common interest in guitars and the two decided to play together. Wilson joined Bogle performing masonry work and they bought two used guitars at a pawn shop for about 10 bucks each. Uh, initially calling themselves the Versatones, the duo played small clubs, <laughs> beer bars, and the sort private parties throughout the Pacific Northwest. Wilson played rhythm guitar and Bogle played lead. Uh, when they went to register the band name, they found that it was already taken, which later on they were very happy about. And uh, <laughs> they kind of poked around looking for another name. And Wilson's mother is the one that suggested the name The Ventures because they were kind of in this new venture, a new new genre of music. They were doing something totally different. And so in 1959, they became the Ventures. Uh, after watching Noki Edwards play at a nightclub, they recruited him as their bass player. And uh, he owned a Chet Atkins LP, Hi-Fi and Focus, on which he heard the song Walk, Don't Run. And soon the group was in a recording studio playing the new song with Bogle on the lead. Wilson was on rhythm, Edwards on bass, and Skip Moore on drums. They pressed a number of 45s, which they distributed to several record companies, and later Skip Moore opted out of the group to work at his family's gas station. Uh, when Walk, Don't Run was recorded, uh, he also opted out of royalties from recording <laughs> taking $25 for the session instead of royalties. Oops. Oh, wow. Big <laughs> oh, mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and then they said they never heard from him again after that, which is shocking hmm. because you would think he would have been back <laughs> saying, uh, guy, can we renegotiate that? Um, <laughs> he did actually later sue to collect royalties, but failed because he, he opted out. Right. And uh, wow. Walk Don't Run sold over a million copies and was awarded a gold record. In 2008, March 10th, the Ventures were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with John Fogarty as their presenter. <laughs> Who knew? John Fogarty. Uh, in attendance were original members Don Wilson and Noki Edwards. Late uh, 1960s, John Durrell, current guitarist Bob Spaulding, and current drummer Leon Taylor's son of Mel Taylor, who along with Mel Taylor's widow, Fiona, accepted on behalf of the Ventures' late drummer, uh, Bob Bogle and Larry, and Jerry McGee were unable to attend the ceremony. Uh, Fiona Taylor gave special mention to her husband, and uh, it was quite an event. They recorded many, many popular songs. Uh, one of them that I always loved was Telstar. And as I mentioned, they, they messed around with new sounds and new instruments and new things altogether. And at Telstar, at the beginning, there's the rocket taking off. And if you pay very special attention and you think of an old fire extinguisher, you might actually hear that fire extinguisher at the beginning. So check this out.
Telstar takes us back to those days of the space age. You look up Telstar, you'll find out all about how this is related to outer space. 38 <laughs> Ventures albums, including a seasonal Christmas album and that disco album that I need to get my hands on charted. Well, the disco album, I don't know if it charted in the U.S., but 38 of their albums charted in the U.S., Six of the 14 chart singles made it to the top 40, with three making it into the top 10 of their 38 chart albums. 34 of them occurred in the 1960s, and the Ventures rake as the sixth best pop album performer for the decade, according to Joel Wittenburn's Top Pop Albums. Among their achievements in America in 1963, Ventures had five LPs, on the Billboard Top 100, I think I mentioned that, uh, of albums. Additionally, they released a series of instructional LPs entitled Play Guitar with Adventures and Play Electric Bass with Adventures, where they taught you their techniques because they actually did pioneer new musical techniques in playing guitar and bass. Uh, while they predated the advent of the term surf guitar, surf rock, they don't consider themselves a surf rock group, but they are an instrumental guitar group, and uh, they are the building block of surf music, if not the first to play the surf style. If you ask most anyone who loves surf music, you say the Safaris and the Ventures, and they'll say, oh, yes, that's right. They, they are the two greats, as well as Dick Dale and the Deltones and a few others. But uh, the Ventures, I sure loved them. You know, one of the things that they did is, is they took a lot of old songs and they reworked them. Songs like Miserloo, uh, that was popular with big bands. And I mean, it goes way back. I think Miserloo, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is an Egyptian song that dates back mm -hmm. to 830 BC or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm That's an oldie. That yeah, that I'm just making that part up. But. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I don't even know the origins. I've tried to look up the origins of Miserloo and I can't find them. It's like, you know. Hmm. To, uh, so you you know, could, it could be true. I, I think St. Peter wrote it. I'm not sure. But it's, uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but they Craig, I had a question, yeah. a technical question for you. Um, I'm not a guitarist, but um, you mentioned earlier the, the flange effect. Yeah. Is that when you bend the note? No, the, the flanger is is a uh, well. Now it's a pedal. I don't know what it was there, but it's kind of, kind of that oh, kind of sound. Okay. That's uh, yeah. That's what. Gonna... What's the? It's a little bar, right? A whammy bar or whatever. Well, that yeah, the they note, call it right? the whammy bar. Bends notes and that sort of thing. But actually, oddly enough, early on, they actually bent the notes by bending the neck of the guitar. And, oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, wow. then they then they got whammy bars later on and, and that sort of thing to bend the notes. But uh, yeah, if you watch that that uh, documentary that I was talking about, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars, they talk about a lot of that. And uh, I think it's really worth your time. One of those songs that they recorded that was an old one is a song called Perfidia. And uh, I'm going to go out on that and throw it over to Ray, who's going to talk about another obscure band that maybe you've heard of uh, somewhere <laughs> along the way. But here's Perfidia. <laughs>
And with that, I'm throwing it over to Ray for his obscure little band <laughs> that no right. one's ever heard of. Take it away, <laughs> Ray. Ob- that obscure band. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, I'm excited to be back on this podcast. Good to have you. And uh, yeah, the obscure band is the Beach Boys. I come at this from a non-musician, pure fan. So that's my perspective. And I have to tell you that this experience ranks in my top five Beach Boys experiences in my entire life. Wow. I'll give you a quick rundown. Yes, this is a way. First, of course, was my introduction to the Beach Boys. And that was my, my older sister handed me an LP, Endless Summer right? Which was their first greatest hits collection. It came out in 1974. And that was it. I was, I was hooked. Uh, they were the first music group that I really got interested in at all. And, uh, and they've stayed with me as my favorite band to this, this very day. And I still drive people crazy with how loud I play the Beach Boys. It used to be my mom, <laughs> right? When I was a kid, please turn that down. Now it's my wife. <laughs> please turn that down. And by the way, two sons, who tell their father, please turn that down. So you that, kids in your rock and roll music. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that is still going on. Although my youngest son, Jonathan, he catches on. He's the bright guy. He gave, recently, recently gave me a gift of the Endless Summer LP framed. So I have that nice. hanging in my office, which is very, very cool. So number two was my interview with Mike Love, which I did like 15 or 16 years ago. And I'm going to come back for that when I was wow. a newspaper columnist. Number three was seeing the Beach Boys in concert. I've done that three times, okay? And then the last two are tied. I wrote a, I wrote a, a column review of their 2012, their last studio album, uh, which I'll get to a little later on. And then this, I'm on the Mid-Modcast podcast talking about the Beach Boys. So oh, this is all very exciting. So that what's is the huge. deal? It's it huge. Is. It's, it's not huge. everyone that we asked to talk about the Beach Boys. I understand you know? that, yeah. So the Beach Boys got started in suburban Hawthorne, California. They were a true garage band, a family band, really. Um, you know, their their summer-focused harmonies, of course, led them to become one of the greatest uh, American bands of all time, and um, certainly in the 60s and, and lasting to this very day. But they were formed back in 1961. Uh, Brian Wilson, I guess you would call him, you definitely have to call him a musical genius, uh, certainly a troubled genius in terms of his background, but a great songwriter. He was on keyboards and bass guitar. Carl Wilson, his brother on lead guitar, uh, another Wilson brother, Dennis Wilson on drums, and then their their cousin Mike Love on lead vocals. And, uh, of course, the business guy in the group, for better or for worse sometimes over the years. And uh, Al Jardine was their good friend on rhythm guitar. And... Um, they actually were first known as the Pendle Tones, hmm. which I did not know until I was doing some research on this. There are some others that I just want to mention now, and maybe we'll come back. David Marks was briefly a Beach Boy when Al Jardine early on left to do some schooling. So Marks was there for a bit. And then when uh, when Brian Wilson stopped touring, Glenn Campbell, a name that people should mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. came in. And he was there, I think, almost a year. Uh, and then it became Bruce Johnston, who... Kind of the final, he's, I think you would call him an official beach boy to this day. Um, he left for a little while, but he wound up returning. So their first big hit was in 1962, was Surf and Safari. And why don't we play that cut? Let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come on a safari with me.
that reached number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. And then the next big hit, which is Surfing USA, really brought them to stardom. It hit number three in 1963. But there's an interesting story with this song. I don't know if everybody is aware of it, but it's the same song as Sweet Little 16. And it was meant as a tribute to Chuck Berry because Chuck Berry was such an influence on them. Apparently Chuck didn't, wasn't too thrilled with that though <laughs> and uh, threatened a lawsuit and they wound up working out a deal. So now you see Chuck Berry's name as co-writer on it and oh. he got a big chunk of the cash too. Wow. Yeah. So that's interesting. Isn't it, it? It's um, funny that Chuck Berry was so influential with them because I know he was with the Beatles also. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Cool. It's um, so, you know, a bit later, you had them kind of leap up the more personalized lyrics. Um, the, uh, as one person put it, ambitious orchestrations came from Brian Wilson. Um, it really started with the beach boys today album, which was in 1965. And then you had good Vibrations single in 66. And of course, pet sounds in 1966. And that really made them the innovators, you know, one of the great, great rock and roll bands and Rolling Stone, you know, they do their 500 greatest albums. Um, and Pet Sounds is number two hmm. um, on that list after uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is number one. And then the Beach Boys on the current list, because they change this every, I don't know, seems like every decade. But the Beach Boys, the Beach Boys today is, if you're wondering, number 466 out of 500. So, uh <laughs> But one of the interesting things about that I did, again, I didn't know this, the title track from Pet Sounds was actually made for a James Bond movie. Really? So he wanted, Brian Wilson wanted it to be one of the songs for a James Bond movie. It was rejected. So he renamed the song. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But you mentioned, you know, the Beatles Beach Boys thing is something that's that fascinates me, that competition, if you will. So Rubber Soul, the, the Beach Boys album, I mean, uh, the Beatles album, excuse me, influenced Pet Sounds. And then Pet Sounds influenced Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. And McCartney and Wilson, Brian Wilson, I have to be clear about this, um, really had that going on back and forth. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, you know, how that had fallout with uh, with Brian Wilson a little later on. And also California Girls, right? When you listen to back, if you listen to back in the USSR, you better be aware of California girls <laughs> because that's the Beatles uh, having some fun there to say the least. Um, and so, and Paul McCartney talked about this. Uh, and so has Brian Wilson, that there was this competition that they were, you know, Brian Wilson really was a perfectionist and wanted to, um, it, it seemed excel, like sell, go beyond the Beatles. Seemed like there was a mutual respect there. I mean, that's yes. a, I know. I think it was more like they were driving each other, right? Two right. creators yeah. being driven forward. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so after, after the pet sounds, you know, their success continued, but it was more uneven to say the least. Um, and then once you get into the very late sixties and, and into the seventies, it was interesting. There's one album sunflower that was released in 1970. And I, I find this interesting with music, um, because you can, and I guess it's the same with books and music uh, and movies and so on, but it was, that album was, you know, a hit with critics but not with the public um, in any, in any sense. So it landed, um, they said three, number 380 on Rolling Stones, 500 greatest, right? One of the earlier lists. So it's there, right? It's on that 500 greatest album, but it was the worst selling Beach Boys album 
to date. Um, mm. So they hit the, it was kind of interesting to think about this. The Beach Boys were opening at one point for Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, right? Uh. Now that's really hard for me to imagine. And then all of a sudden, Endless Summer, which I mentioned as having an impact on me, came along. They, they, our greatest hits collection was released in 1974, and it shocked everybody because it hit the top of the. It was a chart topper, and it uh, it stayed there a really long time. And then all of a sudden, the Beach Boys were the Beach Boys again. Um, and they also at the time earned a tremendous amount of praise for their their live performances. I think it was in either seven, it might've been 74 or 75 that Rolling Stone named them their band of the year. And, and you, when you look back on their history, you say, really? But they cited it for their live performances that they were, they were that good. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take a little, another leap forward, a little, but let's, let's cue up uh, a song called, a little song called Kokomo. Craig, hit it, baby. Aruba, Jamaica, That song is another f fascinating mark in Beach Boys history, right? So, you know, when you when you got into the 70s and into the early 80s, they'd have that occasional hit, right? But in 1988, that song, which, by the way, was featured in the movie Cocktail. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, hit number one. Now, that was number one 22 years after their previous number one, which was Good Vibrations in 1966. Wow. And at that time, that was the longest stretch between number one hits by anyone in the U.S. at that time. Interestingly, the record was broken, and I can't tell you by what songs, by Cher. <laughs> so go figure. Uh, <laughs> so Kokomo is, it, and now Brian Wilson had nothing to do with that song. It was written by Mike Love, and I can't remember the two other uh, writers. But I remember seeing one of the documentaries on the Beach Boys where they were surprised on both ends. Uh, the interviewer asked Brian Wilson about the song and he's like, I love that song. And, and then he went on to talk about why he loved it so much. And then he went back to Al Jardine and told him what Brian said. And he was like completely shocked. He was like, he said yeah. that he said that really, which speaks to the, the troubles that this band has had over the years um, behind their, their sunny songs, which I'll get to in a minute. But now, what I want to touch on again, so, so that's 1988. I'm going to take a, another leap forward here in time. It's 2006. And I had the opportunity when I, I wrote a weekly newspaper column for many years and for Newsday on Long Island. So the Beach Boys came to Long Island uh, at that point, you know, and still today, very much Mike Love, Bruce Johnston, and whoever else was, was playing instruments. Um, so I had the chance to interview Mike Love, <clears throat> which was cool. And, you know, he talked, he made a few points that are worth highlighting, I think. At one point, he said to me, he said, in terms of their concert, he said, you have children, preteens, teens, young adults, mature adults, and grandparents. You know, <laughs> we see four generations as, at our shows, and it's amazing. And it's true. I mean, I, I interviewed him, and then I went to the show, and you looked around, and that was clearly the case, and I'm sure that's still the case 
uh, today. And you had everybody at this wide range of ages dancing to, you know, help me Rhonda and, and Barbara Ann. Um, and I asked him, you know, what was the key to their appeal? So this is his quote. He said, some of the songs are timeless, not only musically, but lyrically, they connect with so many millions of people that have, uh, <clears throat> that have gone through or are going through or about to go through some of the same common experiences that we all have. And then he went on a little bit later and he said, the effect of our, the effect our music has had on people in terms of giving them something great to look forward to, something positive to play in their own lives, whether it's at their homes, at the office, after work. Um, and that's true, right? I think that very much is true of the Beach Boys continuing legacy, if you will, right? Um, and I love this quote. At the time I, I read this book, it's a very interesting book on the Beach Boys, Catch a Wave, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson. Peter Ames Carlin is the author. So he was talking about the song, I Get Around, right? And he he called it, his quote is, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness tricked out in metal flake paint and mag wheels. <laughs> and I thought that was great, nice. right? It's great. It's a great line, but it, that's the basic point, I, th I think, in so many ways with the, with the Beatles music, right? Now, I'm going to claim a scoop that I didn't really have, but I'm going to claim it anyway. <laughs> so in that interview in 2006, right, I asked him, uh, I asked Love, uh, hey, do you think they, that we'd ever see new music from you guys, right? So his answer was, he, he referenced this tribute that they had all been at at Capitol Records. And he said, Brian, quote, Brian must have asked me three times, when can we get together and write? Um, and then he, he, I can remember him, noting some career conflicts, but he still concluded, he said, but it's very possible from my standpoint. So that's my scoop because six years later, <laughs> you had a new album from, from the Beach Boys, uh, first studio album since uh, back in the, in the nineties. So Craig, why don't we queue up? That's why God made the radio. So that album fascinates me. It came out in 2012 again. Um, it debuted on the Billboard album chart at number three. So uh, VintageVinylNews.com said the last Beach Boys album to chart higher was 1974's Endless Summer, which topped the charts again. And the last studio album to make it that high was 1965's Summer Days and Summer Nights, which peaked at number two. So... The fact that 50 years after, right, uh, Surf and Safari hits in 1962, and these guys pull it off, and they do. The, the whole album is really, I urge people to to go out and listen to it. it they, they just really, it's very Beach Boys. It's, it's a combination of 
some of the stuff they've done really well. You know, the the beachy upbeat, you know, kind of fun, and then also some some wistful songs. So it's really well done. Um, and that was their last studio album. I, I want to touch on, you know, the Beach Boys are, are fascinating to me. Rock and roll bands, of course, are well known for being crazy and having all sorts of terrible things going on behind the scenes. And it kind of fascinates me more with the Beach Boys because of the type, their music, right? And I think people can be like, oh, you know, it's nice, cool, right. you know, yeah. summer music. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get, you dig behind. Um, you know, you, you talked about, uh, the mom of the, of of being a great manager, Murray Wilson, the Wilsons, uh, three brothers, their dad was not apparently by most accounts, not a very good guy. Okay, right, let's, right. I'm being generous. He, he was their early manager, controlling, abusive. Uh, finally, Brian fired him in 1964. Um, but that's the same year where Brian Wilson had his first nervous breakdown. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, what, could you imagine having to fire your dad? Yeah, the, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it, the things that you, I mean, I'm not going to go too far, but we, the stuff you read and you hear, it's just, you know, it's it's it, brutal, brutal relationship. Um, and he had, I think he was a frustrated musician guy. He had written some stuff and so on. Um, and then, of course, Brian, melt, you know, battled mental illness, um, and then he made it worse with drugs and so on. And it's just a really sad story for such a musical genius. You, It's one of those what if scenarios. You look at everything that he produced and it's like, wow. And then what if that, you know, if, uh, if that didn't happen and he had that strange period where, uh, that Dr. Eugene Landy, which I know one person yeah. referred to as a dodgy psychiatrist yeah. basically controlled his life for several years. Um, so there's a lot of, again, a lot of sad stories there. You know, I, I want to point out one thing, you know, he's done, he's, he, he's done some fascinating music on his own. There's one album that, I caught in 2008 it's called lucky old son and it struck me because the songs are really interesting from very beach boy-y if you will okay um but his voice in that is just there's no other word but horrendous it really oh, is no. and it's wow. it's such a heartbreaker because when you listen to the songs and the words and the music and everything it's like wow and i, I every time i come across that i say well too bad he and Mike Love couldn't got together, you know, for that that one album. Because if somebody like Mike Love had been singing those songs, I think people would have known uh, a lot more about that album. And then Mike Love, of course, they, these guys love suing each other. Um, <laughs> but the worst case scenario was when Dennis Wilson married Mike Love. Mike Love's his cousin, right? He married Mike Love's illegitimate daughter. <sighs> and so this is the type of stuff. And and they couldn't be in the same room together. There were restraining orders. They'd get, you know, violent with each other. Um, and then Wilson, of course, he was battling alcoholism for so many years. He's another sad story. And he got hooked in with the Manson family. And then, oh my gosh, uh, a lot of people say that when everything broke with what the Mansons did, that that had a big effect on him. And that sent him spiraling even deeper into the alcohol and so on. Um, and the way he died is also. You know, he died drowning, but I didn't know that he was actually, he took the boat out because he was, he was having such money problems. He was trying to find things that he threw in the, in the water years ago <laughs> that it his, and he wanted to go down and find it and use it to sell it. And, and he wound up drowning. So, oh um, wow. yeah, uh, that was 1983. Carl Wilson died of lung cancer in 1998. Um, so 
There are other like smaller, certainly smaller things. You mentioned Jan and Dean. So their number one hit, Surf City, was written by Brian Wilson. And it's interesting, oh, Jan, really? they showed up at Brian Wilson's place saying, hey, we want to do this type of music. And Brian's like, hey, here's a song. No and kidding. they're like, hey, thanks. <laughs> no idea. And yeah, and they went off and it was a number one hit. And guess what? The other members of the Beach Boys were not pleased with Brian for just kind of saying, hey, here's a song for you. Um, the other thing about surfing, you guys, uh, only Dennis Wilson and Bruce Johnston knew how to surf. Yeah. Um, and, mm. and Brian Wilson once told Rolling Stone, and supposedly he was afraid of the ocean, which is really ironic, but he said he tried surfing once and the board hit him in the head. So I just want to cover uh, some key points with the, with, with the Beach Boys in terms of, you know, their music and so on. So they... They were ranked number 12 out of 100 greatest artists of all time by Rolling Stone. Uh, five of the original Beach Boys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the original five, in 1988. Uh, Mike Love, apparently at that time, said some not nice things about other people in the industry, and he had to apologize for that. <laughs> um, 62 to 69, they had 26 hits enter the top 25. Uh, 80 plus songs have charted worldwide, 36 songs in the U.S. on the top 40 charts, and they had four number one hits. I Get Around in 1964, Help Me Rhonda in 1965, Good Vibrations 1966, and then again, 22 years later with Kokomo. Um, mm. You know, how do you, how do you sum these guys up? I mean, you know, you enjoy, the, if you enjoy summer, if you enjoy sun, surfing, waves, beaches, cars, Southern California, right? Love, Love Lost. I mean, they, they covered all this stuff in their songs. They ranged from upbeat to wistful, uh, reflective, as well as, you know, leaving your cares behind. Um, we talked a little bit about Chuck Berry being an influence. Uh, they were influenced Brian. I mean, you have to say Brian was influenced by R&B, classical, jazz. He, he cited the four freshmen, mm. um, the four preps. So with passing years, does enthusiasm wane for the Beach Boys? Well, I guess you could say does enthusiasm wane for summertime and for fun and sun and so on. I, I think that, you know, the Beach Boys, they obviously stir memories and they tap into hopes and dreams. Um, but they also strike different chords in life, right? The same song. I mean, th I, I, I thought about, I wrote this in, in one of the columns I wrote, you know, as a father, I listened to when I grow up to be a man right? With the question, will my kids be proud or think their old man's really a square, right? I have a very different attitude as a father. And as a, as a married man, my appreciation for God only knows with the line, quote, God only knows what I'd be without you has grown exponentially. So this speaks to the various different times in your life, I think that, and that's with music in general, right? But I think so much of the Beach Boys lends itself to that. Did you ever hear um, David Bowie's rendition of God only knows what I'd be without mm -hmm. you? Oh, wow. It I'm is, not, no. it, it is, at first, it's weird, and then it's yeah. it's haunting. Indeed. After that, it's it's really neat. Mm. Yeah, check I'll it have out. To check it out. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and my only other point with the Beach Boys really is that if I'm, you know, what Mike Love talked about in terms of where you play the Beach Boys, right, various places, and and if I'm not in the right mood, you know, for work or life, the Beach Boys, you know, really still help me to get my thinking and mood in the right place. And and uh, you know, if you have a rough week. I argue who couldn't use a little fun, 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 who couldn't enjoy <laughs> some good vibrations or slip away to a place like Kokomo, right? So, you know, music can be incredibly powerful. I'm not alone in thinking that. And, and I'm not alone in terms of the Beach Boys, right? Making some kind of difference 
on this level in my life. Um, you know, after all, and that's why these guys are considered one of the great bands have the second greatest album ever, according to Rolling Stone. And their, their songs have become, what would you call them? Pop rock standards, right? I so, guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's me and the beach boys. Well, they sure do make you happy when, when you're not feeling so great or on a rainy oh, yeah, day, man. you know, you put Absolutely. on the beach boys and you're happy, happy. Sorry, Craig. I didn't think to ask this during your segment. Um, do you guys have a, a favorite beach boys tune? Oh my goodness. I have like, yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, since, um, since I lived in Pasadena, I'm going to go with the little old lady from Pasadena. Nice. <laughs> nice. It's, uh, I, I would probably say, um, uh, wouldn't it be nice? Oh, that's a good one. I think yeah. is, is yeah. my favorite. And, you know, and by the way, if, if you guys have never done this, um, I, I think they released a lot of these on the Pet Sounds anniversary CD set. But if you've never gone on like YouTube and searched isolated vocal tracks hmm. for beat for certain beat. Well, I mean, just put in isolated vocal tracks for the Beach Boys and you it it's really cool to listen to how they layered everything. Hmm. You know, because a lot of it was double tracked and then they would mm -hmm. also, you know, put in the backup vocals. And but when you hear the vocals without the music playing it, like where you said earlier, it's it's kind of a haunting sound to yeah. Yeah. like ethereal. There's no music playing, but these beautiful voices are coming out of your speakers. Yeah. What about you, Ray? What's what's your oh, go to? I knew you were going to ask that question and I actually marked things. So I was, <laughs> I was like, well, Surfer Girl. Oh, yeah. yeah, is that, yeah. I mean, and. And I mentioned Surfing USA. I don't care if it's based on Chuck Berry. <laughs> That's one of the uh, fun, fun, fun. California Girls, Good Vibrations. I mean, all of these. And then Kokomo, I, I have to say, I, it just hit the right time with me in life. And the fact that they it came out of nowhere again. Um, I like things like Sloop John B. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Sail on Sailor, some of those. Um, and I do like... Uh, that's why God made the radio. It's just a, a great little song. So yeah, yeah they really a, got a the sound, list. the Beach Boys sound in the vocals with that song. Yeah, and there are other the harmonies. Songs. And, yeah, yeah yep. man. And that, and that's the thing, right? I heard somebody on the radio at the time saying the boys can still harmonize. Yeah, yeah. and that's that album. Really, they still can. <laughs> it's worth listening to. Yeah. So there did, you go. did did Mike Love, or maybe you know about this? Didn't Mike Love originally start as a baritone, and then he kind of had to go up to the tenor to take Wilson's mm. vocal position. I don't, I don't know. He may have, I'm not sure. Um, Seems like a, I remember that. A, I might be wrong. He's an interesting guy. I, you know, I, I got to talking to him about uh, uh, piracy, music piracy. Oh, and, oh, wow. and he was interesting. Cause he was like, he thought it was tougher at the time. Right. On, and it, you know, you could still argue today, I suppose that it was tougher on new groups because he said for us, I'm just getting new audience. He talked about that audience, right? So I'm getting exposed to people that didn't know we existed and so on, but to get started and not to have, you know, to have that, that challenge, he found that um, that's, that's what he, what he was citing, but he was, he, he had that great, like, it was such a Mike love line. He goes, Hey, I want to make a buck just like the next guy. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that would be a Mike love statement. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it really, they, they, it's kind of interesting to, to have, um, you know, at least for me, you know, a rock and roll band play a, a part in my life like this from when I was a kid, right? 10 or 11 years old till, till now when I'm years old. <laughs> <laughs> 
58. Just, just so you know, Ray is older than David and I. There just, you go. Just so you know. I turned 58. I just turned 58 in April. All right. Well, I yeah, will I'm, be 59. I'm the, I'm the baby in the group. I've got a few <laughs> weeks left. And, um, sometime, and sometime this week, somebody in this house will say, could you please turn down yeah. the Beach Turn it down. <laughs> right. Well, let's throw it over to Dave at this point. <laughs> The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled that golden sand two sweethearts and the summer wind <laughs> so that is uh, a, a frank sinatra tune from 1966 entitled summer wind so craig about i don't know what two or three weeks ago when we were trying to figure out what we were going to do our next episode on um i came across uh, a list of 80 songs from parade magazine do you guys remember parade magazine yeah, well sure. they have an they have an online presence now and i got to thinking oh yeah so maybe i could approach my segment from um a mid-century you know songs about summer and or, uh, Ray, it just dawned on me that, um, you know, while the teenagers in this time period were cranking their Beach Boys songs, uh, this is what the parents were listening yeah. to. So right. um, it kind of fits. So uh, I'm not going to go through 80 songs. Um, most of them <laughs> are actually from our youth uh, in the 80s that are on that that list. But um, I picked out five songs from uh, the mid-century era that I'm going to talk about uh, briefly um, and we'll hear uh, a snippet of each one. So Summer Wind uh, was released on the Reprise record label, uh, which was originally created and run by Sinatra. The song was written by German composer Heinz Meyer, but later uh, Johnny Mercer wrote English language lyrics. The single reached number 25 on the U.S. Billboard charts and was backed with a live version of you Make Me Feel So Young from Sinatra's LP, Sinatra at the Sands. So w w when we were younger and buying 45s, did, did you guys ever notice, you know, like if you bought the picture sleeve version of a, of a 45, it, it would always say B slash W. So you hmm. would know what was on the flip side of the single. I don't know so if it, I ever noticed. Uh, I was yeah. not a very bright child, apparently. <laughs> Well, it it's it stood for backed with. So ah. the flip side of hmm. Summer Wind was um, uh, a live version of You Make Me Feel So Young. Uh, wow, that's a nice forty-five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> I'll have to seek that one out. Um, so the Summer Wind single is from Sinatra's Strangers in the Night, again from nineteen sixty-six. Um, 
which has arrangements by Nelson Riddle. And sadly, this LP would be the final time that Sinatra and Riddle uh, would collaborate. Mm. Um, and then just a little bit of trivia. The song uh, was also recorded and had success uh, in the 60s by such performers as Wayne Newton, Bobby Vinton, and Perry Como. And then yeah. in the 2000s, uh, Michael Buble recorded a really good version. I believe that's Summer Mr. Way. Como to you, sir. Mr. Como. <laughs> yes. Um, I love that. So that's Sinatra's <laughs> Summer Wind is just. Yeah, I was going to say. It's it, so good. His is the most famous. I mean, his vocals are on point on that, on that particular song. All right. So we're going to keep with the summer theme here, obviously. Um, next up, we have Brazilian organist Walter Vanderlei performing Summer Samba, a.k.a. So Nice. So, Craig, let's hear a little bit of that. I put my martini anyway. I know, right? So doesn't the song just like make you feel like you should be on the beach uh, enjoying a martini or whatever? Yeah. But again, that is uh, that is from uh, uh, Vanderlei's 1966 LP Rainforest on Verve Records. Um, and the song, by the way, was written by Marcos Valle, V-A-L-L-E, uh, who also had a successful recording career um, on Verve. Um, by the way, uh, Vanderlei got his big break when he recorded with fellow Brazilian recording star Astrud Gilberto. Um, we're going to hear a little bit from her later, by the way. He achieved further success when producer Creed Taylor from Verve Records worked with him on several LPs, including this particular one, Rainforest. And... Just on a side note, that there's a love-hate relationship in the Fritz household where <laughs> Walter Vanderlei is concerned. So I really love his distinctive staccato stuttering style. You can't hear it too well on on that particular song. Um, but he he uh, he played the Hammond B3. Um, so often when I put on some Vanderlei tunes, Beth will say something like. Oh, great. Here's that chirpy bossa nova organ stuff that you love so much. <laughs> <laughs> chirpy. Wow. Well, she is and, the music and, teacher, so, you know. And turn right. that down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So uh, I mentioned uh, Estrude Gilberto. So, Craig, let's hear a little bit of Beach Samba. Thank you. 
So for number three, I chose Beat Samba by Estrude Gilberto. And this is the title track from her 1967 album on Verve Records. Verve is getting a lot of uh, a lot of action on this episode. <laughs> Arrangements on this LP are by Umir Diodato. Hope I didn't butcher his name too much there. And uh, Don Sebeska. Incidentally, this LP is included in a book called 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die by <laughs> Robert Demiri. Wow. So there you go. Gilberto, we all know, got her big break when she appeared on Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto's 1963 release entitled Getz Gilberto. On that particular LP, she sang on two tracks, The Girl from Ipanema and Corcovado, a.k.a. Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars. Her recording of Girl from Ipanema earned her the Grammy for Song of the Year as well as nom a nomination for Best Vocal Performance by a Female. And this particular LP on Verve is her fifth beach samba. We're going to stay with Bossa Nova for one more song and then uh, change uh, tactics completely. So my number four song, Craig, if you want to pull that up, is Wave by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Love this one. was written by Jobim, and this in instrumental version appears on his 1967 LP entitled Wave on A&M Records. Jobim later wrote English-language lyrics for the song, which was recorded by fellow A&M artist Brazil 66, among others. Fun fact, uh, Craig, I don't know, or Ray, I don't know if either of you own this record. Um, there are two cover versions for this particular LP. And the whole record is amazing. I mean, it was kind of hard to pick out just one song, but Wave is pretty well known. But um, for, for there are different releases. It, like I said, it originally came out in 1967 with a cover that shows a galloping giraffe with a red-colored sky behind the giraffe. Um, and so I tried really, really hard today trying to find online the reason why the color changed so a couple years later when they were making more copies uh pressing more copies uh when they sent the record covers to the printer for some reason the picture uh had a green colored background huh. but um pete turner uh the photographer who shot that particular image um, he, he, he did a little digging and found out that, uh, it was just a printer error, printer mistake. <laughs> so they, they read the order wrong and printed it with a green cover instead of a red cover. So um, is, anyway, is one more collectible than the other? 
Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, I think there are probably more green covers out there. Some, yeah, maybe the red one. Isn't that is funny? Little... You're expecting like, oh, what's the story yeah. behind yeah, this? Yeah, it should yeah. be interesting. Nope. And by the way, <laughs> it, it's interesting if you think about it. There, there are no giraffes in Brazil. Um, but the story goes that Creed Taylor, the producer of this record, uh, he did a lot of, uh, he produced a lot of the the songs I've mentioned on this episode. Um, he liked cover art that would grab uh, the record buyer's attention, whether it uh, whether it had anything to do with the content of the record or not. <laughs> so yeah, galloping giraffe on a Brazilian record hey. that that sounds like a good idea. They probably yeah, have some giraffes in a zoo or two down there. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> Right. But not galloping uh, <laughs> across the countryside <laughs> or whatever. All right. And then to wrap up my segment, um, uh, Craig, let's hear Ella performing Too Darn Hot. Yes. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. But I ain't up to my baby tonight cause it's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. It's too darn so again, that's Ella Fitzgerald's jazzy lament to hot weather on Too Darn Hot. This version is from Ella's 1956 studio double album entitled Ella Fitzgerald Sings the Cole Porter Songbook on Verve Records. The song is from Porter's musical Kiss Me Kate from 1948. Um, in uh, it was in 53, uh, it was made into a movie by MGM, but in the movie version, uh, it's performed by singer and dancer Ann Miller. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that particular movie, but in the scene where she performs it and tap dances to it, um, she's trying to convince a producer to let her uh, perform the song in a musical production. Um, and fun fact, the original lyric according to the Kinsey report was changed in the movie version to be according to the latest report, which I think is kind of funny because I mean, do you think the general public really knew what the Kinsey report was, but I guess the production code didn't allow any references to sex related research. So they made them change the lyric, I guess. It, I it was quite the scandalous thing. So, oh, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. it right. may have been pretty well known. Um, but Ella's version uh, keeps the lyrics from the original stage version. And by the way, Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter Songbook was her first album for the for the then brand new Verve Records label, as well as the label's first release. Uh, due to its success, she went on to record seven more songbook LPs for Verve, all entitled Ella Fitzgerald Sings plus the composer's names songbook. Uh. So uh, they did releases with uh, Rogers and Hart, Duke Ellington, Irving Berlin, uh, let's see, George and Ira Gershwin, 
Harold Arlen, Jerome Kern, and finally Johnny Mercer. And uh, back in the 90s, all eight LPs were released by Verve in like a anniversary edition, a multi uh, CD set that had these really cool, um, they reproduced the the album covers for each release, but in a, in a miniature CD sized uh, record cover. Um, and I also just, I poked around today on uh, Spotify um, and discovered that pretty much every track, pretty much every track from all eight of those LPs is in a Spotify list called uh, Ella Fitzgerald, The Great American Songbooks. And it also includes tracks, this playlist on Spotify, from a non-verve release from the 80s uh, that she did of Jobim tunes. Huh. So. Cool. Yeah. So the great American songwriters plus a Brazilian songwriter. So, yeah, check that out, everybody. Uh, Spotify. Very good. And that that's it for me. Well, we have had quite a technological adventure through this whole thing. Hopefully I'll edit it so you'll never even know. But uh, for the three of us, I think it's time for a cocktail. Until next time, stay swell, everybody. We'll see you.